As we pray this morning, I'd like to read a couple of verses to begin our prayer from Jeremiah chapter 17. Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved, for you are my praise. Look, they keep saying to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. Father, let your word come. Speak to our hearts. The words of which we study today are the words which you have given to us through the prophets of old. And Lord, they are words that are as important for us today as they were for Israel 3,000 years ago. So, uh, Father, I pray that we will take the truth which you speak to our hearts and make it part of our being, that you will strengthen us to walk faithfully before you today, to believe the truth and to reflect the truth into the lives around us, to help us, Lord, so that we are not drawn in to the world of this day and, and particularly of the 20th, end of the 20th century United States where materialism and all the things that are so uh, degrading are, are becoming so prevalent. Lord, pray, may we stand strong in, this, in the armor of the Lord and for the truth of God, and may that stand draw many into your kingdom. Lord, bless this hour today. Guide us in our study. I pray that as the word is preached this morning and as other classes we have lessons taught, we ask that you'll be present in each and every instance. And Father, as your word is proclaimed around the world and as we'll be praying for many of our missionaries later on this morning, I pray that you will bless the work that you're doing through them today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll turn to the fourth chapter of 1 Samuel, I'd like to read beginning at verse 12. Now a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came, behold, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, eagerly watching because his heart was trembling for the ark of God. So the man came to tell it in the city and all the city cried out. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, what does the noise of this commotion mean? Then the man came, and hur came hurriedly and told Eli. Now he was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am the one who came from the battle line. Indeed, I escaped from the battle line today. And he said, How did things go, my son? Then one, the one who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has also been a great slaughter among the people. And your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been taken. And it came about when he mentioned the ark of God that Eli fell off the seat backwards beside the gate. And his neck was broken, and he died, for he was old and heavy. Thus he judged Israel forty years. You remember last time that we were looking at the instance where Israel has gone to war with the Philistines and they were fearful because in the first battle they were defeated and they didn't want that to happen again so they went over to Shiloh and they uh, grabbed the Ark of the Covenant and they brought it into their camp and there was a great shout of hallelujah amongst the Israelites because the Ark of God was there and then the next day they went into battle and they lost the battle and that's what this particular passage is dealing with today as the Israelites as the Israelite soldiers fled from the slaughter. A warrior, we're told he was from the tribe of Benjamin, was the first to reach Shiloh with the terrifying news. 
As noted before, Shiloh was about 20 miles to the east of Ebenezer where the battle was fought. Shiloh didn't find an overhead this morning, so didn't get one up. But if you remember, as we looked at the map last time, Shiloh is up in, it's in the West Bank, if you like, <laughs> today. It's in that area where they're doing all this fighting right now. And Ebenezer was down on the edge of the Shephelah, on the edge of the plain, about 20 miles to the west, towards Tel Aviv. Not too far from Tel Aviv was the site of Ebenezer. And so this man was running uphill towards Shiloh after the battle. What this passage is telling us is that on the very same day that the battle was fought, this man ran to Shiloh to spread the news. That tells us two things. First of all, the battle must have occurred fairly early in the day, so the man would have some time to run. And it tells us also that he did run. <laughs> this was a sort of a Jewish form of the marathon here. As, as he ran those 20 miles to try to get to Shiloh before it got dark, to bring the news of the tragedy. In the passage, we're told something of his appearance. And his appearance, I think, gave to those who saw him coming a premonition of the worst. As he came running in, they saw that his clothes were torn and dirt was dumped on his head. The passage makes a point of that. It says specifically that his clothes were torn and specifically that there was dirt on the top of his head. Now, we know from many other Old Testament passages that that appearance was intentional. It wasn't accidental. He wasn't just running into camp with a, with a battle uh, damage on him, you know, or dirt from the battle. This was done on purpose. He was demonstrating mourning. And he ran the whole day to bring this tragic message of the fierce battle and of the terrible defeat. And, of course, it wasn't just, as we're going to see, the number of men that was lost. It was, of course, the tragedy of the loss of that most sacred symbol of Israel, the Ark of the Covenant. Eli was sitting by the roadside. We're told specifically he's sitting by the roadside just outside the gate of the city of Shiloh. Shiloh, you remember, is the place where the tabernacle was set up at that particular time. Waiting for the news of the battle. He was anxious to discover what had happened to the ark. This was great concern to him. In fact, we're told in verse 13 that his heart was trembling for the ark of God. This man was responsible for the ark of God. He was the high priest of Israel. He was the one who oversaw the worship of Israel at Shiloh. And so whatever happened to the ark and the, the physical tabernacle, this was all under his responsibility. Now, I, I don't really think that it's very clear from the passage that what happened to his sons is not foremost in his mind. He's not primarily worried about what happens to Hophni and Phinehas, his two sons, or even maybe what happened to the army of Israel. He is concerned about what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. What that tells us is that he did not have solid faith that where the Ark went, God went, and victory was automatic. Otherwise, his heart wouldn't be anxious for the Ark, right? If Eli had granted permission for the Ark to be taken, and that's questionable, did Eli actually say, yes, you can take the Ark, or they just bust in there and say, we're taking the Ark whether you like it or not? We don't know. The passage doesn't tell us. But if he did grant permission for the ark to be taken, it was reluctant permission. I don't think he felt that this was really the right thing to do, but this was pure pressure, and therefore he released the ark to be taken to the battlefield. Never before. You go back through the pages of Scripture up to this point, you'll never find a place where the ark of the covenant left its proper sanctuary without God either ordering it to be taken or giving permission for it to be taken. 
Oh, yes, the ark led Israel in battle before, but only as God had ordained it to be and commanded it to be. And we found no passage, no statement in any of these scriptures indicating that God had ordered or given permission for the ark to be taken. And so what we're looking at is, as I highlighted a couple weeks ago, they are viewing the ark of the covenant as a talisman. They're viewing it as a good luck charm. They're viewing it as taking God in a box to the battlefield and that the enemy will flee before them simply because they have God in a box, not realizing that it's the faith that people have in the God of the ark that makes the difference, not the ark itself. That's why I feel that if somebody were today to actually find the Ark of the Covenant, if it still exists, I don't think we were going to have a Raiders of the Lost Ark scenario happening. <laughs> Lid comes off, you know, everybody melts into the dust. I don't think so. Uh, because that's, that's a magical concept of the Ark. The Ark was symbolic, but the Ark itself possessed no power. It was only if God were there between the cherubim, and he was there by faith, that it had power. Whether the runner entered the city by a different gate or not, we don't know. Did he run right by the blind old priest as he was sitting there anxious for the news and not paying many heed? Well, we're not told. All we know is that he ran into the city and he spread the news. And of course, Eli was not one of the first to receive the news. What he heard was the distraught cry of mourning of the people as they, their voices went up in horror as they heard the word of the tragic loss. Certainly there were men of Shiloh who were on the battlefront and who probably died in the process because the man who is coming and spreading news is not from Shiloh, he's from Benjamin to the south. When Eli heard the cry in the city, he called out to whomever was nearby. He said, please, somebody bring me the news. I've heard the cry, what is the news? And so someone ran and got the messenger. They didn't dare tell Eli themselves. Who wanted to tell Eli that his sons were dead? Israel had lost and the ark had been lost. Who wanted to do that? It had to be somebody with authority. So they ran and they got the messenger. So that Eli could hear the word directly from a man who came from the battlefront, the Benjamite soldier himself. Verse 15 of this passage tells us something about Eli's physical condition at that particular time. We discover from this that he was 98 years old and that he was blind. And we will discover from another passage later on that he was also very, very obese. This helps us to understand, I think, in part the frustration of this man. He could not go with the ark to the battlefield because he was too old and he was blind. And he couldn't be the first to hear the news because he didn't even know what was going on because he couldn't see. And I think it obviously is part of the reason for his rather sudden demise. Well, the message was so incredible, and, and the warrior knew this. He knew that the message he was bringing was hard to believe. It was the most horrible message that possibly could be shed in Israel, particularly, or spread in Israel, particularly in the town of Shiloh. And so as he came up and as he came to Eli, he felt he had to validate his credibility. And so he tells Eli, I have come from the battle line itself. I have been there. I was a, ba I was a soldier in the line of battle this very morning. And I have come to tell you what I saw to happen. This man was an eyewitness to the event. This is very essential. Eyewitnesses. That's why Luke tells us, as you begin the Gospel of Luke, that he said he, he is giving us the word of the Gospel as he heard it from the eyewitnesses. So that you know, as he said to oh, most excellent Theophilus, so that you know the truth of the things that have happened in sequential order, which of course illustrates the fact, the fact that Luke was a Greek. Greeks don't think the same as Hebrews. 
Hebrews don't think linearly normally, at least the old Hebrews didn't. Most of them do today, of course. But in those days, they didn't think uh, chronologically as, as we do or as the Greeks did. Well, after having heard the wailing of the people in Shiloh, Eli knew that the situation was not good. And he knew the news was probably not good, but he didn't know how bad the news was. And so he asks the messenger, how did things go, my son? And I think he asked it very hesitantly and fearfully. How did things go, my son? I think he feared, maybe not the worst, but he feared that it was bad. He didn't know, of course, that he would hear the very worst possible news that he could hear. I think it's important for us to note how the Benjamite related the story. He related the story in four concise statements. He made them in, or in, in a crescendo, in, in increasing intensity, increasing uh, impact, especially on the man Eli. He says, first of all, Israel has fled before the Philistines. That was bad. Israel had fled before the Philistines. It wasn't the first time Israel would flee before an enemy, and it definitely won't be the last time. But that, that, that's bad, that Israel should flee before an enemy. Secondly, that there has been a great slaughter. And that really comes directly out of the first, because as I've highlighted to you before, throughout most of the ancient world, the greatest battlefield death always came when one army broke and ran before the other. And the archaeologists have shown to us how many wounds were, pro were produced in the back of the fleeing men. But thirdly, he says, and I'm sure he was hesitant to tell Eli this, Hophni and Phinehas, your two sons are dead. And I'm sure that was, that was hurtful to Eli, but Eli survived all of these. And, and he heard the word, and it was tragic, it was sad, but he was holding his breath for that last one. What about the ark? That's what we're told back in verse 13 he was anxious about. His heart was trembling for the ark of God. And then finally, the eyewitness soldier said, and the ark of God has been taken. The ark of God has been taken. Impossible. How could this be? The very emblem of the presence of God in Israel has fallen to a pagan people, the Philistines. The Philistines whose name would be commemorated forever and ever in the name Palestine. They have taken the ark. Eli survived the first three statements, and they were blows to him. But when he heard that the ark had been lost, he was dealt such a severe blow, it was as if someone had, came up, had come up and, and hit him fully in the face with a clenched fist. He fell backward off his chair, and the scripture says he broke his neck. I don't think it was because he was sitting on a high perch of some sort. It was because... I think the blow was more emotional and spiritual than even physical, but on top of that, he was 98 years old and he was obese. And so as he fell over backwards, his neck could not take the stress of the weight of his body and it snapped and he died. Thus in one day, in one day, God fulfilled the prophecy that he had given through Samuel concerning the house of Eli. Not fully, but he, he began the fulfillment saying, of course, that no man in the house of Eli would live to an old age as priest. And so Eli would die the last of his family to live to be an old man. Hophni and Phinehas done, died as probably middle-aged individuals, never succeeding to the priesthood because they were not ordained by God to the priesthood anyway. They were vile men. They were more pagan than the Philistines. 
Well, then we have this very interesting description that comes at the end of the passage. And let me read verses 19 through 22. Now his daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark was taken and that her father-in-law and her husband had died, she kneeled down and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women who stood by her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have given birth to a son. But she did not answer or pay any attention. And she called the boy Ichabod, meaning the glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God was taken and because her father-in-law of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God was taken. Phineas's wife heard the tragic news, including the sudden, sudden death of her father-in-law. And the scripture tells us that she went into labor right at that time. What we discover here is the tragic news impacted this woman. And although she would live long enough, to hear that a son was born, the news also killed her. More perceptive than her husband, Phineas, who was an unperceptive person, she acknowledged that the loss of the ark was an insurmountable problem for Israel. With ironic discernment, she gave her son the ignominious name Ichabod, Ichabod, which meant no glory. <laughs> Name your son No Glory. Hey, come here, No Glory. I don't know. But exactly what did she mean by that? Well, she tells us, uh, we are told in verse 22, which quotes her as saying, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God was taken. Her son was named to commemorate a tragic event in the history of Israel. She didn't, of course, mean by any sense that her son was worthless. But she was saying that Israel had lost immeasurably, and the birth of her son commemorated that great loss. What was the glory of Israel? Would the glory of Israel be the might of its armies like under David? Or the greatness of its temple that Solomon would build? No, the glory of Israel was the presence of God amongst his people. The presence of God amongst his people as reflected in the tabernacle and, of course, in the ark being in the tabernacle. Let's just reminisce for a minute. and Let me turn back to Exodus chapter 29. In Exodus chapter 29, beginning at verse 38, we see something of the offerings that were given and how this reflected in the glory of God. Exodus 29, 38. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar two one-year-old lambs each day continuously. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other you shall offer at twilight. This was to go on 365 days of the year. There was to be a morning and an evening offering. And there shall be one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a fourth of a hin of beaten oil. In other words, about two dry quarts mixed with a liter of oil and a liter of wine. Uh, one-fourth of a hin of wine for libation with one lamb. And the other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer it with the same grain offering in the morning as in the morning and the same libation for a smooth, soothing aroma and offering by fire to the Lord. Why? It shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord 
where I will meet with you to speak with you there. And I will meet there with the sons of Israel and it shall be consecrated by my glory, which is the presence of God. And I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate Aaron and his sons to minister as priests to me. And I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. You see, he will dwell among Israel. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. I mean, a powerful statement of what God meant by his presence and his glory. Represented, of course, by the tabernacle. Represented by the Ark of the Covenant. And sometimes visually seen in the glow or the flame or the smoke. But there by faith. I think we need to underscore that, even though we're talking about a lot of physical things here. And we're talking about a, a presence of the, of the Lord that was sometimes manifested by physical things. We're still talking about something that came by faith. God tells us in Hebrews that without faith, we cannot please God. And that's true from Genesis 1 through the 22nd chapter of Revelation. And God says in this passage that when they do this, and, and when they believe in faith, it shall be consecrated by my glory, by, by God's presence there with Israel. If we turn a, a, just a few chapters over in Exodus to the thort, um, 40th chapter, near the very end of the book of Exodus, we read in Exodus 40, beginning at verse 34, what was the result of all of this if they acted in obedience? Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. You knew the glory of the Lord was not there when they took the Ark of the Covenant because it was taken from the tabernacle. They were able to walk in and grab the Ark and take it without God having commanded that to be done. And that in itself displayed that the presence of God was not there because not even Moses could enter the tabernacle when God's glory was there. And we know that the high priest could only go into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was one time of year, a year after special preparation. How significant was God's glory in the tabernacle to Israel? How important was that? Well, the importance is illustrated by a couple of statements made by the greatest of all the Israelite kings, David. Let me read um, a verse from Psalm 26. Where in the eighth verse of Psalm 26, David says, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Now today we don't have an Ark of the Covenant, but we have the Word of God. And the Word of God is, is not a talisman but the Word of God is the source of truth and it's the source of God's glory into our lives, both individually and corporately. Jesus said that where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst, which means he's here today. Not just here in the sense that he dwells in all of our lives, but here to do something. He's, he's here to teach us, to, to touch our lives. He's here in power. And of course, it's only by faith that that power is converted to reality in our hearts. If, if we sit cold, dead, and and, you know, immobile having to do with all of this, it, it makes no difference, even as it did not in those days. Oh, yes, God's presence could be shown up in the flame and nobody dared go near it even if they weren't believers. 
But you could still not believe in those days. And many in Israel did not, as we know. And their lives weren't changed, and often their lives were destroyed. As the 30,000 men died on the battlefield that day, as they fled from the Philistines. In the next, very next psalm, David says this, and this is, of course, a very well-known psalm, particularly since songs have been written from the words of this psalm. In the first verse, we read, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host should encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord, and that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. That is, David is not saying, I wish I could live in the tabernacle all the days of his life. He wants, he's saying he wants to live in the presence of God all the days of his life. Behold, to behold the beauty of the Lord. And then, of course, to meditate in his temple. There was no temple in the days of David. The temple was built by his son Solomon. So when David speaks of the temple, he is, of course, at least in part referring to the tabernacle, which he had moved to the outskirts up to the top of the Ophel, just outside the walls of the city of Jerusalem. But he's referring to the presence of God, the glory of God there in Israel. That is the true temple. For in, that, for in the day of trouble he will conceal me in his tabernacle, and in the secret place of his tent he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock, and now my head will be lifted above my enemies around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. That is a very spiritual psalm. Even though he uses temple and tabernacle, he's speaking spiritually here of the presence, uh, uh, of being in the presence of God by faith, regardless of the actual physical place. He's not talking about running and hiding in the tabernacle all the time, but in the tabernacle of God's presence. And of course, we, we know that in the scripture, we're told that God tabernacled amongst Israel, meaning that he dwelt, he tented with them. He was there with them in their encampments. Well, the loss of her husband Phineas was a blow to the woman who bore the son Ichabod. The loss of her father-in-law was, I think, even a greater blow because he was the chief priest of Israel. She was no dummy. She knew that her husband was a jerk that he was not following the Lord in faith, that he was even not acting uh, faithful to her. He, she knew all of these things. So the loss of her father-in-law was a greater blow. But as it was so for Eli, so it was for her. When she heard of the loss of the ark, this was the killing blow. Now, of course, in those days, it was not uncommon for women to die in childbirth. In fact, it was all too common. But I think in the case of Phineas's wife, there's no indication that there was a physical problem. It seems that it was the news of the loss of the ark because we're told that not even hearing that she had given birth to a son, which was the greatest joy of any woman in those days, not even that could cheer her up. It, it says she paid no attention. She wasn't even listening to the ladies because she was dwelling on the great tragedy of the hour and nothing. Not even the fact that she had born probably a beautiful little baby boy could lift her out of the pit of depression and despair and hopelessness. And I believe that's what killed her. Many have speculated about the death of Mary Stuart, Queen 
of England who died in 1558. There's no evidence whatsoever that she had any illness. And there's no evidence of foul play, even though there were many who didn't like her. But there's a great deal of evidence that she just rolled up in a ball and died because everybody hated her. And she totally lost spirit and was in despair in the deepest of depression. And we know that that can kill because there are many evidences of it, even from the Korean War, of our soldiers dying of no physical cause, simply emotional depression. Her will to live had evaporated. And of course, there was the trauma of having given birth, which complicated the whole thing, and she died. Let's read on in the fifth chapter. See what happens next. Tragedy in Israel. Will the, or will the ark bring glory to Philistia? Verse 1 of chapter 5. Now the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. When the Ashdodites arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set him in his place again. <laughs> There's so much humor in some of this. Uh, if it weren't so tragic for these people, it would be humorous. But when they arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor all who entered Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. To understand this, you have to again go back to, and we won't take the time to do this, but you have to go back to the first chapter of Romans. And it's only from the first chapter of Romans that we can really get an, a, a, an understanding of why people can do things that seem so absolutely ridiculous and, and, and totally reject what seems to be the exhibit of true power and cling to that which is powerless. I think the Philistines were absolutely amazed at the magnitude of their victory because they went to battle. If you remember, we read two weeks ago that when they went to battle, they, they were a bit fearful going into battle. They tried to encourage each other and saying, hey, fight as men because even though Israel has their ark, their talisman with them, their, their God with them, if we really fight hard, maybe, maybe we can prevail. Maybe our God can win. And of course, we already know what they, what they thought about the ark because th we're, we're told what the Philistines said. They said, oh, this is, this is the, the gods that gave them victory, that, that destroyed Egypt and, and gave them victory in the wilderness. And uh, the Philistines knew about the ark. And so I don't think they could hardly contain their joy as they carried the ark off to the city of Ashdod. Now, we've talked a little bit about Philistia before. Philistia is on the southwest coast of Palestine, Israel. It's the area uh, basically south of uh, Tel Aviv, all the way down to Gaza. Gaza, of course, has been in the news a lot lately. There, there was a, a Philistine pentapolis there, five major cities, and we've noted them before. Uh, Gaza was one that we talked about when we dealt with Samson. And uh, this city, uh, Ashdod, was located on the, on the Philistine plain, just right near the Mediterranean, just a short distance from the Mediterranean Sea, about 30 miles south of the site of the battle. It stood strategically astride the major route of that part of the world at that time known as the Via Maris, or as in, in the Latin phrase, the Via Maris, the way of the sea that went from Memphis in Egypt 
uh, along the northern coast of the Sinai and up through Palestine and went up by the Sea of Galilee and then cut up through Damascus. This was the main road of that day. It was the I-5 of that part of the world. And there were trunk roads, and we've talked about them in the past. So here is Ashdod sitting astride the main trade route of that particular day, which, by the way, did put it in a place where it encountered trouble down through time and uh, would face many enemies. According to ancient records which have survived, Ashdod was a flourishing commercial center. Particularly, it was noted for the wool industry which existed there and being involved in the wool trade. At this time, because the ark was taken to Ashdod, now Ashdod was not the closest city to the battlefield, so why did they take it to Ashdod? Well, it may have been the lead city of the Pentapolis at that time. It may have been sort of the de facto capital of the Philistine Confederation at that particular moment. In Joshua chapter 15, we won't turn to it, but we read that Ashdod and all the other Philistine cities had been allotted to Judah. When Joshua divided up the land and said, all right, this tribe gets this place and this tribe gets that place, Judah was supposed to have Philistia. Judah was supposed to take Ekron and Gath and Ashdod and Eshkelon and Gaza. But Judah did not capture those cities and never took any of the plain before the time we're talking about, in fact, until later in time. And so what we're reading about is a consequence of that disobedience. If they had captured those cities, this story wouldn't even be in the Bible. It would never have happened. But they did not carry out the conquest as they were ordered by Joshua, as Joshua spoke the word of the Lord. So to honor their god Dagon, whom they believed had given them the victory in this battle, the Philistines placed the Ark of the Covenant right, I mean, they took the Ark right smack into the temple of Dagon and they parked the Ark apparently more or less maybe at right angles. We're not exactly sure because we're told the statue fell before the Ark, so it could be either parallel to the Ark or straight to the Ark, whatever. They took it into the room where this statue of Dagon stood in all his hideousness. Why? It was a trophy to Dagon. It was a symbol of his power. He had given them victory. Yahweh of Israel had been defeated by Dagon of Philistia. At least that's what they thought. And they relished the fact that their God was being reinstated because it was this very God who had been humiliated in the days of Samson. Without going back there, but to refresh your memories, if you remember when we read in the 16th chapter of the book of Judges that it was the temple of Dagon in Gaza, which was the southernmost of the five cities, where, where Samson was brought in before this great, great crowd of all the lords and ladies of Philistia were gathered together in this, in this temple of Dagon. And, and it was there that he pushed over the key pillars and brought the whole temple down and destroyed, it were told in that passage, more in his death than he had killed in his life. Thousands and thousands of Philistines had died that day. And so now, several decades later, their god Dagon has finally demonstrated his superiority because on that day, 30,000 Israelites had been killed. And the very core of the worship of the Israelites was in their hands. Now, to them, you know, if somebody had taken their temple and carried off the statue of Dagon, that would have been lost, but they had other Dagons around. You know, they had a Dagon in every city, a temple in every city, so there were multiple images of Dagon around, so if you lose one, you haven't lost it all, but there was no other symbol of, of Yahweh like the Ark of the Covenant. And so, to them, it was like having totally defeated the God of Israel, and hence, Israel themselves. But, of course, their joy became muted the very first day after they had installed the Ark. 
told they got up early the next morning. They went in there and uh, Dagon, <laughs> splat. Dagon had fallen right smack on his face in front of the Ark of the Covenant. Now these were superstitious people. And this was a disturbing discovery because they had not, you know, the seismograph had not shown any earthquakes lately. A little statue here. We're talking about a big statue, big enough so when he fell forward, he went out of the main sanctuary into the other part and broke his head and hands off the next time on the threshold. You don't just topple a big statue like this with a breath of air. So they were worried about this. They thought maybe it was just a freak accident somehow. And so they put him upright again. And this, of course, where, where, where's the logic in this? If this God is so powerful, how come you have a bunch of people have to push him back up? You know, why can't he get himself up? These people have been so steeped in this for so many hundreds of years and they've never known otherwise that they can't comprehend the folly of it, as we could look at it, of course, in our day and see. And of course, they thought it was all okay now. The next day, however, they returned to Dagon's temple and their faith re received another blow, not a crippling blow, unfortunately, because not only was Dagon on his face again before the ark, but now his head and his hands had broken off. Heads and hands were very symbolic in those days. The head and the hand was the very symbol, were the very symbols of life. In fact, often in those days, and this is kind of gross and you don't have to listen to it if you want, but often to maintain, to, to get a body count, they collected heads and hands. So they had an accurate body count of how many of the enemy they, sl they slew. And so what's, this is a symbolic of, hey, body count here, <laughs> one day gone down, you know? <laughs> Did this dissuade the Philistines from worshiping Dagon? On the contrary. The only long-term impact was that they wouldn't walk on the very threshold where his, arm, where his head and hands were broken off. Well, this is probably sacred to be there and I walk on that, you know? <laughs> So they stepped over it or did something to prevent themselves from walking on that particular place in the temple. Ashdod would later be captured by Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Israel, king of Judah, I should say. In the 8th century, Israel, Judah would finally do what they'd been commanded to do hundreds of years before. They would capture Ashdod and other Philistine cities. But did that really matter? I don't think so because we discover that the temple of Dagon still stood there 600 years later because we read these words in 1 Maccabees chapter 10, verse 84. But Jonathan burned Azotus, which was that day the word for Ashdod, and the temple of Dagon and those who had taken refuge in it. Now, 1 Maccabees is not a part of the scripture unless you belong to you know, the Catholic or the Orthodox Church. Um, it is not considered part of Scripture, but 1 Maccabees, even by evangelicals, is considered to be a very good historical record, although not a divinely inspired part of Scripture. And of course, it's dealing with, a, with an event which happened in the second century and, and a war that was taking place between the Jews and trying to get rid of the uh, Seleucids, the, the Greeks that had uh, come to control their area. So there still was a temple of Dagon 600 years after Judah captured Ashdod. Satan does not give up, right? He continues to work. Did they glue Dagon's head and hands back on and stick him upright again? Probably eventually, but I don't think they did it right away. I think they thought, we better do something about this art first because <laughs> this could be a real problem after a while. We might end up with Dagon in shards. And so we, we better get rid of this art first. And so next week we'll see what they did and <laughs> it created panic in uh, Philistia.